Good morning. My name's Adam. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. I want to personally thank you so much for being here. I'm excited to be here. I wasn't here last week. Uh, Dr. Fairman was here. Some of you got to meet him. Someone that means a lot to me. So thanks for uh, sharing him with me. Uh, ended out our series well said. This morning we start a brand new series. Last week though, we were at, I was away with our elders. And what I want to do is I want to ask those, if our, those that are in this room that are on the elder board. I didn't tell them I was going to do this, so they may not be willing to do this, but I'm going to ask them anyway. Would you guys stand up? The elders here, just give them, I think I see most of them here. The only one we're missing is Chris. Is that correct? Yes. Missing Chris. Can you guys give these a round of applause? These guys. Thanks guys. Last week, we were away on a working retreat, and what that means, it's more work than retreat. Uh, we did have some fun. I tried to play tennis with a boot on. That isn't, was, it was ugly. Um, I don't think anyone got any footage of that, so no blackmailing there. Uh, but we had a lot of fun uh, working hard and just saying, we're, we're a team. We lead as a team. This church is led by this team of men. And so let's really give attention to working as a team. It doesn't just happen. Uh, I came away just so confident of the direction of this church, just feeling like, wow, we are headed in the right direction. We're hearing the voice of God, and we are moving in direction. He's asking us to go to reach our community, to introduce people to Jesus, embrace them as family, and help them to grow. Just, just love this team of guys. So I want to thank them for that. Now, this morning, we start a brand new series, and I'm going to introduce the series a little later, but we are going to show a video. Uh, this video is from the movie Bruce Almighty. Uh, some of you say, oh, and others go, yeah, it's a cool movie. Uh, even if you haven't seen the movie or heard of the movie, I think the clip is self-explanatory. It kind of gets into a reality that I think most of us in this room have experienced at one level or another, and that's frustration and anger towards God because of our life's circumstances. So again, go ahead and watch this clip, and we'll uh, help us introduce the... Well, thank God you're all right. God, yeah, let's thank God, shall we? For his blessings are raining down upon me. Wait, that's not rain! Bruce, please don't do that, honey. You know that everything happens for a reason. That I don't need. That is a cliche. That is not helpful to me. A bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. I have no bird. I have no bush. God has taken my bird in my bush. Oh, I see. So, so God is picking on you? Is that what you're saying? No, he's ignoring me completely. He's far too busy giving Evan everything he wants. Oh, that's great, Sam. But you missed your target. I'm over here. Get mad at the dog. It's not the dog's fault. No, it's God's fault. I gave him the wrong coordinates. All right, you know, no. All right, you stop being such a martyr. I am not being a martyr. I'm a victim. God is a mean kid sitting on an anthill with a magnifying glass, and I'm the ant. He could fix my life in five minutes if he wanted to, but he'd rather burn off my feelers and watch me squirm. All right, sweetheart, I know that you're mad. It's completely understandable. What Evan did is slimy and wrong, but this day could have been so much worse. I'm just glad you're okay. Okay? Newsflash! I'm not okay. I'm not okay with a mediocre job. I'm not okay with a mediocre apartment. I'm not okay with a mediocre life. Now, yes, there's some funny parts in there. I have no bird. I have no bush. That's, that's a good line. <laughs> but the reality of that, though it may, not, may never reach the intensity of that in your life, I've discovered that unless you're young and haven't lived a lot of life yet, you've had an experience something like this with a mediocre life and the hurt and the suffering and the pain of life, the disappointment, the loss at one level or another, we all hit it. And we're tempted to step back and ask why God, 
What I have learned about suffering and hardship and disappointment and loss, it is the, as I interact with the world around me, it is the number one issue that drives people from God. It's the number one issue that causes, if you've grown up in a church, it causes people to kind of turn from the church or to, or to just discredit God altogether or never even walk into the church. Pain and suffering and the reality of it really causes us to have a hard time with, you tell me God's loving and God's good, well then why this? If God were really loving and good, this would be cleared up. Now, this series isn't going to be so much about the reality and the theology, if you want to call it that, of pain and suffering. What it's going to be more about is how do we handle the pain and suffering? How do we do it in a way that life gets better for us, not darker? Because what I have discovered in my own journey is that hurt people tend to what? Hurt people, right? You've heard that. And I find that to be so true. Often in our pain and suffering, we're looking for relief. We're looking kind of for that joy that we want to live life to the full. So we make choices that we think are going to get us out of it. And what nine times out of 10 happens, the choices we're making take us deeper into it. When I came back from Charlotte, North Carolina, my counselor talked to me about one of these. Do you guys know what this is? This is a sadistic playground toy, right? (laughs) I'd like to meet the individual who invented this thing. Um, But what's the goal of this, right? You put your kid on it, or maybe you have scarred childhood memories from this, uh, but you, you get put on it, and then the parent or the caregiver runs around as fast as they can to watch what happened. The kid just, and sucked to the edge, and they, I'm gonna vomit, I gotta get off this thing. Well, how do you get off? How do you get off of this? Now, if, if I am the kind, loving father that I am, and my kids are spinning around wild and crazy, if I just reach in with all of my brute strength and grab it and stop it instantly, what's going to happen to my children? Whew, there they go. I mean, they're going to be off in a, that mud puddle underneath there. They're going to be, they're going to come home and mom's going to say, what on earth? Dad? I mean, it's, it's going to be a mess. So how do you get off? When I sat down with my counselor and came out of Charlotte, North Carolina, I, I'd failed my job. I'd failing in my family and as a husband, we're all but bankrupt and I'm hurting. I have disappointment. I'm frustrated with God. I asked that Jim Carrey clip. I was, man, I'm like, God, I had enough of this. Why? I sit down with my counselor and he says, Adam, here's what we're going to do. We're going to teach you how to get off the merry-go-round. And we're going to do it in a way that it doesn't get ugly for you, but actually helps you and those around you. And he said, the thing that you need to do is climb up to the middle and sit down, right? Because what's the middle of that? You, you, yeah, you're still turning, but it's not the out to the edge. Now, I walked out of his office and said, I need a new counselor because I went off this thing. I don't want to sit on it longer. And that's the struggle. That's the tension. If you've worked with teenagers, you've seen this happen. Or young people. Young people will grow up and at times experience pain. Maybe it's from abuse or neglect at home. Maybe mom or dad aren't there. Maybe they are there, but just completely checked out. And there's this hole inside of the young person. They hurt. And sometimes they don't even know how to put words to it. So what do young people often do with the hurt? They make choices that make the hurt last longer and uglier. They run with friends that really aren't good to be with. They start to get into drugs and alcohol or cut themselves or do other things. To, what are they doing? It's a response to the pain. They want off the merry-go-round. And they're making choices to get off the merry-go-round, but all they're doing is being ripped off, and it's just getting uglier for them. Or we had a wedding in here yesterday. I see this happen in marriage. Beautiful wedding. Beautiful ceremony. Prince Charming and the princess ride off into the sunset and live happily ever after. It's what we all dream about, right? Well, then the honeymoon ends. And you begin to realize, well, He's got an addiction. I didn't know about that. 
Well, she's got a problem. That didn't come out in pre-marriage counseling. And began to happen. He began to realize as you sit down, it could be little pain or significant pain. He realized, I'm disappointed. This is not what I chose or signed up for. And the hurt sets in. And you're on the merry-go-round. And oftentimes what I watch happen, and this is the heart of this series, our elders said, hey, let's do a series that talks about when people hurt, the reality that we have a tendency to make decisions that hurt us further or hurt those around us. Let's help people get off that merry-go-round. Because we see marriage happen, they run to the arms of another person or they run to some kind of substance or they do things that then cause even greater pain in the midst of the marriage. And you're like, man... So the heart of this series, though we're going to talk about suffering and wrestle with it, the reality is what we're really going to try and do is wrestle with this, that the suffering only gets longer and darker at times for us. And so we're going to try and get away from that. We're going to try and push back from that. We're going to say, how do we get off the merry-go-round? Well, to get off the merry-go-round, we've got to climb up to the middle and sit down. And we don't like that because that means we can't get rid of the suffering. We're still going to be spinning. Life still might feel out of control. But at least I'm not vomiting or out at the edge, you know, ready to lose it. Now, to do that, we're going to look at a story this morning, and we're going to wrestle with this reality. What I have seen in my life, and as I've walked with others, there's some people in my life who have suffered and suffered well. And what I've learned is I've watched people who do that. This is the distinction that I've kind of picked up on. They don't get hung up with why. God, why? It's a fair question, and I think it's even a good question. I think it's okay to ask, but the, the, where they really put their eggs is in who. So we want to learn to ask who, not why. Who is in control, not why is this happening? And so again, this is going to lead us kind of down the road, I think, this morning, and then for the next two weeks, is we're going to look at the guy, a guy named Joseph. Now, hope, maybe some of you have this journal. Um, if you don't, you'd like one. They're on out there. We are on page 70, I think, 8, 78 this morning. Um, and our reading plan, we're going to go through this guy named Joseph, his life all week long. Uh, if you're not in our reading plan, I'd encourage you to join us. Um, more than welcome to join us. Uh, but his story is found at the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter 45, and then we're going to look at verse 50. Now, a lot of the chapters ahead of time, you're going to read this week. I'm not going to read them all this morning. I'm going to mention them to kind of set the stage for us and as they lead kind of into these, into these chapters. So Genesis chapter 45, very beginning of our Bible. If you don't have a Bible, please see me afterwards or see someone out there in that welcome center and say, I'd love a Bible and we'd love to put one uh, in your hands. Now, Genesis chapter 45. Let me set the backstory for you. And it's important as we set the backstory, I want to go all the way back to Joseph's father marrying his mother. Very important part of this story. I think if you understand this, you'll start to make sense of the rest of the story. Jacob is Joseph's father. He heads off on a trip. His trip, he's kind of heading off. This was before the days of ChristianMingle.com. And this is so he goes out looking for a wife. So he's heading out looking for a wife. That is his whole mission of this trip. He meets, he comes to this well. And this beautiful, beautiful woman is there. Her name is Rachel. The scriptures describe her, and in, in our language today, we basically say she was a supermodel. I mean, she's like, whoa. And Jacob is like, whoa. And so he goes, I want to marry this girl. So he goes and meets the dad, because in that day, you know, it's an arranged marriage situation. You don't just date, then court, and, you know, run off and get married. So he meets the dad, and the dad says, yeah, she's a good girl. She's worth having. How about seven years of work for her? Now, it's this beautiful, poetic verse at this point in Genesis. It says he agreed to work seven years for her, and those seven years seemed but a breath because of his love for her. I mean, it's like, whoa, this is so romantic. So he's married, he wants to marry this girl. So the seven years come and go. 
The seven years are done. He has the wedding ceremony. They head off to, the, to their wedding tent, if you know what I mean. The, the, the sun is set. It's dark out. He wakes up the next morning. The sun comes in the tent. And he rolls over. And he's like, well, it's not my wife. Here the dad slipped in place into the tent at night. The ugly older daughter. Now I say ugly. You say, some of you are going, wow, Adam. The scriptures actually say she was weak in feature. And translated ugly. <laughs> I don't know how else to say I mean, in our English Bibles, in the Hebrew, I mean, there's not a lot to do with that. She's ugly. So Joseph is admittedly upset. He's been tricked. This isn't the woman I wanted. I mean, this, no way. So he goes back to the dad and says to the dad, Hey, what happened here? And he says, well, in our culture, the older daughter should be married first. And we figured she hasn't been married. And I mean, look at her. I mean, can you blame anyone? And so he's like, we wanted to get rid of her. So we're giving her to you. And I'm, he's like, I don't want her. He says, well, here's the deal. The one you do want, how about seven more years of work and she's yours? So now 14 years, he agrees to work and he finally gets her. 14 years. Not only does he get her though, now he's got two wives. Now you talk about a dysfunctional family. It's not something I recommend for any of us. They move into life. The older, uglier sister begins to have children. Now, children in that culture is a sign of God's blessing, God's favor. The younger, beautiful one, Rachel, can't have kids. So we pick up the story. You're going to read it this week. In Genesis, um, in Genesis chapter 30, Rachel comes. Rachel comes running into, into her husband and says, listen, I'm ticked off. I'm jealous. I'm angry at God. And I've had enough of this. Give me children. And, and he responds back like a beautiful husband would. Um, it's not my problem, lady. I mean, he just, it's this whole verbal argument that goes on. And, and so she says, well, fine. Take my maidservant, Billa, and sleep with her and give me kids. Okay, deal. It's done. Kids start coming to Rachel through her maidservant. What doesn't fix the pain in her heart? right? She wants kids. She can't have kids and she hurts. Same as many of you who've journeyed that road. It hurts. So in her angst, she continues to cry out to God. She's angry. Finally, God opens up her womb. It says in scripture and gives her a son. Guess who it is? Joseph. Now I tell you all that to say, can you now understand? Most of us know Joseph is the guy with the coat of many colors, right? This is why. In Genesis chapter, um, chapter 37, we read that his dad, Jacob, favored Joseph. Translated, he loved Rachel. Rachel finally gives him a son. His name's Joseph. Now, Joseph, though he was favored, there are, there are at this point in Genesis chapter 37, there are actually 12 brothers all to- total, 12 of them. Joseph is one of the 12. There are sisters too, but the text doesn't spend a lot of time in that. So it's 12 brothers Joseph is one of them. Joseph is a bit of a mama's boy on top of this um, being favored. And Joseph heads, comes in one day from the field. He's also a narc. And we love narcs, right? Don't you love the, the guy at work or the girl at work that always goes into the boss and brown noses? And that's what Joseph was. So Joseph comes running in and says, hey, 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 dad, dad, these brothers of mine, these sons of yours, they're ruining your business. The field's a mess. You got to see this, dad. They're not taking care of your stuff. Now, he's already the favorite child. On top of all of that, he's a dreamer. And he tells this dream to the brothers. He says, hey, guys, guess what? One day, one day, you're going to bow down to me. I'm the youngest, but one day you're going to bow down. Now, they do not like him at all. And you can understand why. So they head out to the field. 
They're in the field working. Joseph comes on out to them. His dad sends them out. And they say, hey, look, here he comes. Let's get rid of him. So they devise this plot to actually murder him. Now, one of the brothers, one of the older brothers, determines, I've got a conscience here, and I'm not about to murder someone. Let's just sell him. Let's sell him as a slave. That's a whole lot better. So they choose to actually sell him into Egypt as a slave. The next place we pick up the story then, he's now in Egypt, sold as a slave. They lie to his dad. They tell his dad that he's actually been killed. The next place we pick him up is in chapter 39 of Egypt. He's been, he's there as a slave. He's working in a guy's home named Potiphar. Potiphar owns him as his slave. And he's working hard for Potiphar and doing a good job. And Potiphar's wife comes on out one day and sees Joseph working. It's just the two of them at home alone. And Potiphar's wife has some issues. And she says, hey, you're a good looking guy. Why don't you come to bed with me? Now, Joseph says, this is beautiful. I love Joseph's response. He says, I will not dishonor my master, Potiphar, your husband, and I won't dishonor God. So clearly we see and understand that Joseph was a person of great faith, of deep faith and love in who God is. And so he actually runs out of the room. Now, she grabs a hold of his clothes and, and his outer cloak ends up staying in her possession. So what she does, she's not a dumb lady. She's realizing, boy, if word gets out that I did this, I'm in big trouble. So I'm going to get out ahead of it. So she goes and makes up a story. Hey, Potiphar, this slave of yours that you brought home, he tried to rape me. Potiphar flips out, same as any husband would. He's going to jail, ends up in jail. He's in jail now two years. Jail, two years. Next place we pick him up then, and just in kind of the recap, is in chapter 41. He's now at this point 30 years old. And you, you'll read as you read the story, you kind of put together his age there, 30 years old. In other words, that's 13 years from the time he was sold. 13 years. The leader of the nation of Egypt was Pharaoh. Pharaoh has this dream. And this guy that's there listen to Pharaoh talk about his dream. None of Pharaoh's leaders could interpret the dream. And this guy that's there says, oh, I remember this guy that I was in jail with. He can tell you about the dream. So they go and bring him out of jail. And he interprets the dream. And Pharaoh says, hey, I like this guy. Come work for me. And Pharaoh ultimately makes him second in command of the entire nation of Egypt, the most powerful nation in all of the known world at the time. Now, Pharaoh, or Joseph begins to have kids. I want to read this verse to you because I think sometimes we hear this story and we kind of romanticize it, like this little fairy tale story, this Joseph, the coat of many colors, and he ends up second in command, and whoa, this rising from the ashes. Here's what he says when he names his second son. The second son, this is Joseph, he named Ephraim and said, it is because God has made me fruitful in the land of my, say this with me together, suffering. Don't miss this. When we hear the story, you know, you maybe as a kid, you saw little felt figures on a felt board in Sunday school, or you hear the story of Joseph in a coat of many colors, and we, we think of this guy rising out of the ashes. He lived in suffering. Imagine being sold by your family. As a slave. Imagine being mistreated in that country as a slave. I mean, he suffered. Suffered deeply. Now, in the meantime, this famine breaks out. Look at all the story around this. You read it this week. But a famine breaks out all over the whole known Middle East. It impacts his brothers who are off in the nation of what we know as Israel today. Kind of north of Egypt. And they need food. So they thinking, they don't, they, they've forgotten all about Joseph. For all they know, he's long gone. They decide to come down to Egypt to get themselves some food. Well, guess who they run into? Joseph. 
Now, in running into him, they don't recognize him. I mean, it's been a long time. But Joseph recognizes them. So chapter 45, this is where Joseph first kind of reveals who he is. And then they freak out. They're like, oh, my goodness, we're dead. This guy's second in command of Egypt. We tried to get rid of him. We are dead. 45 verse 5. And now do not be distressed. This is Joseph. And do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here. Because it was to save the lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there has been famine in the land, and the next five years, there will be no plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. Pause right there. Abraham, the father of the Jewish people, was told that the Jews are going to be a blessing to all nations. There's going to be a remnant, a, a seed, a person who's going to come from you, who's going to ultimately bless all of humanity. We know him as Jesus. All as Joseph knows him as is a remnant. And Joseph understands that, hey, guys, listen, if it weren't for me in this position, our entire race, our entire ethnicity would be wiped out. But guess what? Jesus is going to be able to come one day because I'm here. Now, he understood the why. And again, I said earlier, understand who, not the why. He understood the why. And sometimes we do, and it's it's helpful when we do. Now, look at verse 8. This is even more powerful. Verse 8, so then it was not you who sent me here, but who? It wasn't you. Could you imagine saying this to your brothers? It wasn't you. It was God. Now, in other words, Joseph understood very clear that he wasn't a victim. God is in control of life. These things that have happened have happened for a reason, and God is in control. And we'll come back to this. He goes on, he made me father of Pharaoh, lord of his entire household and ruler of all of Egypt. Now turn me over to chapter 50. Very similar thought comes out. This is a few years later. Joseph's dad, Jacob, has passed away. Now Joseph's brothers come again to talk to him because they're now really freaked out because they're thinking, well, now that dad's gone, we're done. Dad's been the only person holding this whole family together, and dad's no longer here, so we're in big trouble. So verse 15, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you, before he died, this is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrong they committed in treating you so badly. Now, please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to Joseph, what did he do? He wept. Don't miss this. Sometimes we read these verses, we're going to read in a minute, and we've missed the pain. The incredible pain. Scripture never minimizes or diminishes pain and the reality of it. This is years later, and Joseph is struggling still with the pain. He's 39 years old here. It's roughly 21 to 22 years past being sold as a slave, and he still hurts. Now, in light of that, look what he says, verse 18. His brothers came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. Look at his response. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? In other words, don't worship me. I'm not God. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many 
lives. <laughs> what did he just say? I don't know where you're at this morning. Some of you come in here with some pretty deep pain. I know that. Some of you have had some deep pain for years. Can you imagine? This is so foreign to my thinking. Maybe it's not to you. Can you imagine saying that? This pain in my life that's happened. God's in control. One of the things I find that Joseph understood beautifully is Joseph understood that God was both great and good. And I, these two attributes of God, I think, are so important to keep together because in these two attributes, we find security. Seeing God being great, we understand that he's able to restore. He's able to deliver. He's able, he has the strength and the ability to work. That's what it means to be great. He's in control. But when we link it up with good, he wants to. And sometimes we'll walk around and we believe God is great. God is great. He's able to deliver. That's where I think we get that movie clip at the beginning. We know God is big. Not a one of you in this room comes in here thinking, oh, God's a small little guy. He can't do anything. God is great. He's able to deliver. But Joseph understood that God is also good. God's good. He wants to deliver. And sometimes we pull these two words apart. I think Joseph in his life held them together in a beautiful, beautiful way. There's this belief that I find as I interact with people who suffer and even in my own life, I've, I struggled with this. There's a belief that thinks when things are good, God is close. When things are bad, he is far away. I don't know where people find this in the scriptures. Joseph understood for his entire life, God was close. God had a plan. God was in control. Matter of fact, what I find in the scriptures is when we are weak and when we are broken, God is actually closer to us. So I don't know where we get this thinking that when life goes bad for me, somehow we think, well, God doesn't like me or God's far from me. And I think it really, when we work through that, it causes a lot of spiritual frustration when we kind of hang out there. There's another belief that says this. Well, I just need a little more faith. Suck it up and believe more. Believe harder. Have more faith. As I watch hurting people that believe that or are told that by people trying to console or counsel them, we begin to think that our measure of pain is directly related to our measure of belief. And again, I don't see that anywhere in the scriptures. And when hurting people are told that, I believe it amounts to what I call spiritual abuse. Because I watch hurting people walk out and say, well, I got to believe more. And they work so hard at it. And they truly believe. They love God. But it doesn't get any better. So they begin to walk around and think, well, I must not have enough faith. And it's sad to me. There's a verse in the New Testament that links, I think, I think it's, it's almost a, a commentary on Genesis chapter 50, in my opinion, Romans chapter eight, verse 28. And I think this is a misunderstood verse. I want to spend some time with it. It says this, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who say this with me together, love him who have been called according to his purpose. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who say it again, love him comes back to who, not why. Who is God? Do you love him? 
Do you believe he's great? Do you believe he's good? Are you able to crawl up in the middle of that merry-go-round and sit down and just say, who is he? Do I love him? Because the promise here is if I love him, it's all going to work out for good. Now, let me talk about that one a minute. Sometimes people hear, when they, when they hear this verse, sometimes people hear that what has happened is ultimately good. No, 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 no. Let me pause on that one. It doesn't say that. What it says is God is going to work in some really horrible, painful, difficult, awful situations. And he will bring good out of it. Not that what you're suffering, the death, the loss, the heartache, the, the lost job, the lost child... The pain in your heart, that's not good, but God can bring good from it. That's what I think this verse is talking about. This belief is what we call in the theological realm, God is sovereign. And a lot of times people link God is sovereign to this definition. God is in control. God is, some will even say God is in complete control. I personally... Do not believe that's the definition of God as sovereign. I believe there's a much better definition, and I'll, it goes like this. God uses every action of man to fulfill his purpose and plan. Now, why is this different? Here's a lunchtime discussion for you, or maybe small group. When Joseph's brothers sold him, was it God's will for Joseph to be sold? Was it God's preordained plan to, to have that evil, terrible, to have his brothers do that. Now, if you just simply go with God is sovereign, means he is in complete control, where that ultimately leads us is to God being the author of evil. And I don't think that lines up with scripture. So I think the answer to was it God's will is a yes and a no. Somehow, and we have a, Ecclesiastes 3 talks about this. We don't know how all this works together, but somehow... Joseph's brothers committing evil and sin outside of the will of God was still used within the will of God to accomplish his purposes. I think that's what it means for God to be sovereign. Nothing takes God by surprise. Nothing catches him off guard. But it doesn't mean the evil that's been committed against you was, quote unquote, his will for your life. Very important distinction. I think when we begin to understand that distinction, we begin to get our heads around that God is great and God is good. And we're going to leave this together. And instead of getting lost on why, I'm going to ask who is in control. Now, so where does this leave you? What do I do with this, Adam? Okay, so I hear all this. So how do I get to the middle of the merry-go-round? How do I sit down there? Well, the most practical point that I can leave us with is be honest. Be honest. Be honest with God about your pain. Pretending only leads to more pain and more dysfunction. And even if your pain is little, I don't know why we rank pain. I never understood this. Well, you've had a spouse die. You've only had, I don't know why we do that. Pain is pain. And how you experience pain and how they experience pain, it, it's pain. So whether it's little pain or big pain, however you want to categorize it, be honest with God about it. Now, see, a lot of us don't like to do this. Well, that's dishonoring to him. I don't, well, I, we struggle with this one. We'd rather, we'd rather run to our outlets, 
Let's just go home and watch TV instead of engage with the spouse because I'm really hurt. Or let me run off to the bottle or let me run over here to pornography or let me check out in this way or let me just pick the carpet up and brush it under and set it back down and pretend life is all hunky-dory because it's all... No, it doesn't help. It doesn't help at all. To really kind of emphasize this, I want to look at Psalm 88. Now, if you look, there's the whole layout of the books of the Bible. If you're not familiar with the Bible, Psalm is right there. Roughly halfway through, a little, little short of halfway. Psalm 88. Now, I love our worship teams. I love them. 100% volunteer. I absolutely love Jeff. If you guys don't know Jeff, Jeff was the one standing with all this cool stuff that I'm really jealous of right here. Leads this team. Again, and each, each team has a leader that I appreciate all of them, and they're working so hard to constantly get better and grow. And in the midst of all that they do, occasionally we get an email. Or a conversation that says, I didn't like the volume, I didn't like the lyrics, I didn't like this, something. We'll come in every now and then. Not a lot. We actually don't get a lot. I think most people here really appreciate everything that they do. But then we'll get one in. I appreciate people sharing their opinions. That's cool. Please understand that when we read this, this was designed to be sung by a team like this. This was designed to actually be led in corporate worship. It's a song. It's lyrics to a song. Now, if Jeff's team would have walked up here this morning... And sang anything close to this, I might have sent an email to the church. When we read this, we're like, that's for public worship? Now, here's what's so shocking about this Psalm 88 it's dark, and it flat out makes accusations about God that are pretty alarming. You're like, whoa, dude, settle down. And it never resolves. A lot of psalms, when you read them, that's the beauty of music. I love music. I love what these guys do because music speaks to the heart in the way that my spoken word doesn't. It's powerful. And most of these psalms that you read all throughout the psalms, these songs all resolve. They'll, they'll, God, you're terrible. God, you're horrible. God, you've struck me down. I, I'm in so much pain. But they always end, you're so good. This one never comes around. It is full face on Honest petition to God. It's being honest with him. Let's read it. The most positive verses are verses 1 and 2. From there on out, it gets pretty dark. It says, O Lord, the God who saves me, day and night I cry out before you. May my prayer come before you. Turn your ear to my cry. I want to pause right here, then I'm going to read the rest straight through. Again, one of the most honoring things to God that you can do is go be honest with him. It is very dishonoring to pretend the pain doesn't exist and just kind of go on with life and act like I'm going to come into church and worship God and I'm just going to forget all that stuff over there. Hit it head on. It's the most honoring things you can do to God. Now, let me read the rest of it straight through. Let me get a sip of water first because my this, this, is a, this is a charged. Here we go. Verse 3. And capture the pain of this. Some of you can relate to this psalm. For my soul is full of trouble, and my life draws near to the grave. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am like a man without strength. I am set apart with the dead, like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more, who are cut off from your care. You have put me in the lowest pit, in the darkest depths. Your wrath lies heavy upon me. You have overwhelmed me with all your waves. 
You have taken from me my closest friends and have made me repulsive to them. I am confined and cannot escape. My eyes are dim with grief. I call to you, O Lord, every day. I spread out my hands to you. Do you show your wonders to the dead? Do those who are dead rise up and praise you? Is your love declared in the grave, your faithfulness and destruction? Are your wonders known in the place of darkness or your righteous deeds in the land of oblivion? But I cry to you for help, O Lord. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. Why, O Lord, do you reject me and hide your face from me? From my youth, I have been afflicted and close to death. I have suffered your tears and am in despair. Your wrath has swept over me. Your tears have destroyed me. All day long, they surround me like a flood. They have completely engulfed me. You have taken my companions and loved ones from me. The darkness is my closest friend. No resolution. No coming around and saying, God, you're so good. Never does it. It's full bore, honest petition saying, God, my life is bad and you've made it that way. It's hard, but it's honest. It's honest. When I can still come to God and bring him my pain, it's still an act of worship because why am I coming to him? Because I think he can do something about it. Those of you who are parents, I think understand this. When your kids hurt, what do you want to hear from them? You want to know about it, right? You want to know the hurts and the pains and the secrets that lie on their heart? I've never met a good parent who doesn't. We don't want to see our kids shove it and walk away. We want to sit down with our kids and hear the hurt. It honors the parent. But so often we as children, well, dad doesn't want to hear that. Mom doesn't want to hear that. They want me to be a good boy or a good girl. So I'm going to push it aside and keep walking. It doesn't bring honor to the parent. It doesn't bring honor to God to pick up the rug and push it under and lay it down and keep going. It hurts and the hurt is real and it's okay to talk to him about it. I think it's the greatest way to get up in the middle of the merry-go-round and just sit down and really wrestle with God. Who are you? Who are you? Are you really in control, God? And if you are, what's going on here? Who are you? So it's so important in our suffering is to learn to ask the question, who, not why. Why is a fun one to kick around at times, but again, the real answer and the security in life comes from who. I think Jesus does this. Easter's right around the corner. The story of Jesus going to the cross and dying for us and raising again. Beautiful story. Mark 15, 34, Jesus on the cross. Jesus says seven statements that we have recorded from the cross. He didn't say a lot hanging on that tree, but he said seven things. One of them is this. My, it's a quote from the, actually, it's a quote from the Psalms. I find it interesting that David finds, or, or um, Jesus finds outlet from the songs. It's like, he, it's like it touches the inner places of his heart. Music does. Verse 15 or chapter 15, 34 of Mark says this, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? And then you see the why, and it isn't so much of a, why have you done this, God? Jesus knows why. This is more of a statement of, God, you have abandoned me. Now, this is hard for us to understand, but God and Jesus were, I mean, they were one in a way that we were designed to be with God, but they truly understand what it means. And at this moment, what happens for the first time in all of eternity, there is the Godhead is ripped in half and Jesus experiences loss and pain like he's ever known, never known before in his life and never will again. And it hurts deep. And he cries out to God. He's being honest. 
God, you've abandoned me. You have abandoned me. Now, don't miss this, though. One of the other statements from the cross comes in Luke. Father, I entrust my spirit into your hands. I love the beauty of these two stuck together. In one breath, he's saying, God, you've abandoned me. In the next breath, he's saying, God, I trust you. God, you're great, but God, you're good. I trust you. I'm willing to lay this down. I know you've got a bigger plan and you've got a purpose. And Jesus prayed to God and said, God, if there's any other way that this can be done, please do it. Please, please do it. And Jesus just comes to the place and says, I trust you. I trust you. As we think about the cross and we think about Easter, I think one of the beauties of it is no matter how much suffering we face here on earth, this suffering gives us hope. Because when you have a relationship with Jesus, one of the things that you know is that your pain is temporary. You're promised that. If you believe in Jesus, you have a relationship with God, and when you die, you're going to spend all eternity with God. And you know that there is a word given to pain, and it's temporary. Philip Yancey, some of you know him, he has great writings on suffering. He says this, he says, the Bible never belittles human disappointment, never. The Bible never diminishes it, puts it down, or says you're a loser for going through it. It says loss and suffering is a reality of the sin that we have present on this earth. It's real. He goes on to say, but it does add one key word. When you're in Jesus, it's temporary. And C.S. Lewis, though I don't have his direct quote, C.S. Lewis, who wrote the Chronicles of Narnia. Some of you know him, one of the greatest minds ever in all of human history. He talks about this. He says, the ache that you have in your heart when you hurt is an indication that you were made for something far bigger and greater. When you have an ache, it's an indication that you were designed to satisfy. So when you have thirst, why do you have thirst? It's to draw you to water. God is wired us when we ache for something, he's given us a solution to it. All of humanity, all of creation points to that. So when you ache, I love this, allow it to remind you that there is a God in heaven designed to satisfy that ache, to bring life to those hurts, to bring you life and life to the full. So be honest with him. Wrestle with who he is. Crawl up in the middle of that merry-go-round and sit down. Life all around you is going to keep spinning. And you're still going to go around a little bit, but you're going to find, you're going to find on the back end, beauty come from the suffering and you aren't going to go deeper and darker with suffering. God, thank you so much for Jesus. God, I, uh, I just confess to you in front of everyone here, God, as I just talk to you, suffering is a subject that I run from. I hate it. I don't like it. And I do everything and so much of my life is designed to avoid it. God, I think that's true of many humans. I don't think I'm alone in that. So God, would you meet with us in these places? God, I specifically pray right now for the person who's sitting here with us, who's hurting who's in the middle of this stuff and the merry-go-round is spinning hard and they're sucked to the outside and they want to get out. God, would you meet with them right now? Even as we sing this final song, would you, would they know that they're not alone, 
that you're a great God and that you're a good God? Would they wrestle with who you are and not get so pulled into why is this going on? God, I thank you for Jesus. God, I just just thank you for Jesus and the life that he has lived, the death that he died. He rose to new life and is sitting there with you. And the scriptures declare that when we believe in Jesus, we are hidden in him. We can hide behind him. And he sets us on a rock. So thank you for Jesus. And I, I pray that everyone here understands what it means to be in relationship with you through Jesus. And if not, would this morning be the morning that they take that step? But God, ultimately, as we sing this final song, help us just meet with us. Help us to know who you are in the midst of suffering. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.